and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. In the episode this week, we're going to be talking about Star Wars, but don't be afraid. I know that that is the type of topic that can send some people running for the hills or the delete button, but I promise you, I will be taking a very full cast and crew approach to Star Wars. And what that means is, as much as possible, I'm going to try not to get into the weeds about canon and toxic fan reactions and all the kind of, unfortunately, negative things that have of late been in the news regarding Star Wars. Simply put, this episode came about because this podcast squarely deals with a lot of films from my childhood in the 70s, maybe your childhood as well. There's no more important film of the 70s than Star Wars. And it occurred to me that it would be worthwhile to take a look and consider whether Star Wars actually held up as a movie if you sat down and watched it anew, which I hadn't done in many, many years. Now, as I said, we're not here to do either of the lazy approaches to tackling a podcast about Star Wars. One of those lazy versions is Star Wars sucks. That's certainly reductive. It's avoidant of a whole host of cinematic and movie business history. It completely misses the point in approaching a film like Star Wars as well. So we're not here to do that. And as I said, another lazy version is the super inside baseball fanboy geek fest. We're not doing that either. I can speak for myself, although I am going to bring in a couple of guests uh, who I may not be able to corral. But if you want a podcast that's going to go frame by frame through the entire franchise, you can find them. That won't be this. Instead, I'm going to try to do something which feels bold, which is to approach Star Wars as a movie, as free from the baggage it's accumulated, and without, and this feels crucial, ignoring that so-called baggage when the baggage will be material to an understanding of the film and its place in history. So I will try to pay homage where homage is due and tip the cap where it needs to be tipped. And there's so many things to celebrate about Star Wars, but we're also going to approach it as we would any other film, see how it holds up when we strip away all the stuff the internet tells you you're supposed to think and feel about Star Wars. And the starting point for me in revisiting the film was thinking obviously a lot about directors like Coppola and De Palma recently on the podcast. You know, Lucas is one of that crew of filmmakers, this amazing USC film school cadre of Spielberg, De Palma, Coppola, and Lucas. I mean, these are all students together, they're colleagues, they work in each other's films. And as you'll hear, Coppola had some involvement in Star Wars. George Lucas was uh, supposed to direct uh, Apocalypse Now, and that didn't happen. So there's a lot of cross-pollination. Spielberg, you'll hear, was an early champion of Star Wars when many other people didn't believe. So these guys all came up together, they come out of film school together, and they represent such a fascinating moment in American film history and ironically, they all would have told you at USC that they wanted to make probably small art films. And Jaws changed all of that forever. It brought in the era of the blockbuster and 
following that, you had Spielberg's Close Encounters. You had Star Wars. And particularly in Star Wars specifically, although a bit with Jaws, you had not only the dawn of the blockbuster, but you had sequels. You had franchises. The weight of the franchise that Star Wars became was quite a thing to survive. It still is a thing to survive for George Lucas. He probably doesn't get enough credit for an unpopular thing, which is how difficult it is to survive success of that colossal variety. And very few people have experienced success on the level of George Lucas and Star Wars. There's another fascinating episode to be done here about the business of Star Wars. I might like to dive into that because George Lucas did some very bold and impressive things either out of naivete or out of strength that's worthy of discussion. So all of these filmmakers coming up together is fascinating to me. The film industry at the time and science fiction films previous to Star Wars is also interesting. The film business is changing right around this time in the early 70s because the studios were founded in the 1920s usually. So a generation of people who may have worked for 30 or 40 years at the studios were making way for corporate ownership increasingly in the 60s and the 70s. And how these would-be auteurs ended up sort of really ruining the chance for the sorts of films they would have said they wanted to make by creating these juggernaut sequel-generating franchises is a really fascinating aspect of, of this era in Hollywood, if you don't talk a lot about, we talk a lot about New Hollywood and how amazing the auteur movement was and all these incredible films which were realistic and gritty and different. And that is an important part, but there's this other part, which is this part represented best by this film. Now, a little bit of the background of Star Wars was that, you know, George Lucas was a kid who grew up in Modesto, California on a walnut farm. He was very much a child of the 50s. And he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon after making his first two films. His first film was THX 1138, which I had never watched and recently screened in preparation for this episode. Visually and sonically, it's an incredible film. Blade Runner gets rightly cited as being one of the most influential films of all time. Well, in the first few frames of THX 1138, I immediately thought, wow, Blade Runner took a lot from this film. It's a very nonlinear movie. It's an art film. George Lucas can direct. Um, subsequent to that, he made American Graffiti, which is about as different a movie as you could possibly make from THX 1138. And it also is kind of an impressively new Hollywood non-narrative, non-linear narrative film. Again, it shows you that George Lucas can direct. He can, he can create a story. So... After American Graffiti, he can kind of do whatever he wants. And there was an, an attempt for him to do, to direct Apocalypse Now, and that fell through. Coppola ended up directing it himself. He wanted to do Flash Gordon. He wanted to do this kind of childhood serial science fiction uh, action adventure movie. And he couldn't get the rights from Dino De Laurentiis, who then went on to make a pretty terrible Flash Gordon movie, which we've also done on the pod. You can find that episode in our back catalog. So he decided to do his own. And after multiple terrible scripts by his own admission and convoluted storytelling, he eventually had to pare down due to the limited budget. I think it's a $10 million budget for Star Wars. He had to really cut out most of 
the backstory of all the stuff he was talking about. And he ended up finally with this shootable script, which was made uh, at Elstree in London, a similar soundstage that The Muppet Show was being shot on. He's an American working with British crews who did not have a lot of respect or appreciation or understanding for what he was trying to do. And it was very troubled uh, in terms of the budget and the things that he wanted. There really wasn't any place in Hollywood that could do the sorts of special effects that George Lucas was looking for. So he set up his own special effects studio, which came to be called Industrial Light and Magic in a warehouse out by the airport in Van Nuys, California, populated it with his first hire was John Dykstra, who then brought aboard a whole who's who of people who would go on to become legends in the film industry for their work on Star Wars and things subsequent to Star Wars. And that's a whole fascinating subculture in history that I won't really have time to do justice here on the pod, but I highly recommend that you watch, as I did, a Disney Plus documentary series called Light and Magic, particularly the first two episodes tell you the story of Star Wars and the story of the founding of ILM. It's fascinating. So he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, so he writes Star Wars. He shoots much of what he can shoot on the soundstage in England, and then he has to come back to the States, and he finds out that the Industrial Light Magic people have spent half of the special effects budget and only have two shots because they had to build and purchase equipment to be able to try and do the things he was asking them to do. And they very famously had hundreds of shots to accomplish and less than a year to do them, and they managed to do it. And they pulled off basically a miracle, uh, even though today you would say some of these things don't necessarily stand up. And of course, Lucas has famously fucked with the movie a couple of times. That's my phone going off. Rockford Files theme. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Ah, where were we? So there's a couple aspects of the production of Star Wars that I think are particularly interesting. The production design and really the artist Ralph McQuarrie, who basically designed pretty much everything that's visually amazing about Star Wars, came from the pen of Ralph McQuarrie. You know, a film like this, Who Did What, becomes almost impossible to track down. But you can look at early sketches, which are informed, of course, by Lucas's sketches, his ideas for these characters. But it's really Ralph McQuarrie who, who put pen to paper or uh, paint to paper and created iconic things like Darth Vader, the look of Star Wars in so many ways. And a thing that I didn't really realize I should give Lucas a lot more credit for, we gave a lot of credit to, and people give a lot of credit to Blade Runner in this regard for what we call in the film business, the used future. So if you think of Blade Runner, that worn look, and not everything is shiny and new in the future. Things are cobbled together. They're stuff bolted onto the external sides of buildings and to vehicles. Everything is scuffed and worn. It creates this noir sense of a used future. And that really originated in Star Wars. And when I watched Star Wars again, I was surprised how, how scuffed up everything was. R2-D2, C-3PO, 
Darth Vader's mask, like all this stuff is very used future. And the sound design similarly, these are things that like a director insists on and then he empowers people to go make them real. And so those people find iconic sounds like, you know, what a lightsaber sounds like or what a blaster sounds like uh, or what it sounds like when Darth Vader uses the force. And they bring them back to George Lucas and he sifts through them and he says yes or he says no. And so it's kind of fascinating to read about the making of Star Wars and uh, track down some of that stuff. The costume design by John Molo. Another thing I hadn't realized till I watched some of the making of that there was no costume changes because of the budget. <laughs> so what you see, Han, Luke, Leia, Obi-Wan, Darth Vader, what everyone's wearing, they wear through the whole movie. Except, of course, when they're impersonating stormtroopers or doing stuff like that. But there's no costume changes because they couldn't afford it. It's interesting and instructive to think about the sound effects budgets. So, sorry, special effects budgets. So for Star Wars, they had a $1.5 million special effects budget. By comparison, 2001, Kubrick's landmark, groundbreaking science fiction film, which put things on screen which had never been seen before. One of the first advances in motion control camera use to create these stunning images of spacecraft moving through space slowly. That was in 1967. And the budget for the effects alone was $6.5 million compared to the $1.5 million special effects budget for Star Wars in 1977. Close Encounters, which also came out in 1977, had a $3 million special effects budget. The effects on Close Encounters were headed up by Douglas Trumbull, who worked on 2001 effects uh, and was also pioneering some motion capture at the same time that John Dykstra was pioneering some things at Industrial Light and Magic, particularly the ability to create speed in the motion capture photography, as opposed to if you think about close and if you think about 2001 everything is at a waltz pace right uh that was di that was made different for the first time in star wars where we were able to see things moving quickly so these guys had to invent and build everything and then use it to photograph about 350 or more specific optical shots so here come the police welcome to new york hmm Maybe they're coming from me. So the impetus for the episode was to try and do some justice to Star Wars without, with be, while being aware you just can't do the totality of it in one episode. But I had a unique experience, and that's kind of where I started to think about bringing in Bruce and Dan. Both of them have been on the pod before. Bruce has been on a number of times Particularly, we did Alien, and we did Blade Runner. Blade Runner, my Blade Runner episode, Ruth, is the second most downloaded episode of the pod ever, so it's worth checking out. And Dan joined Chris and I to do a really fun episode on the famous train wreck, which is the Star Wars Holiday Special, which I highly recommend. And what happened was I sat down and I watched Star Wars, and I probably haven't seen it. 
I probably haven't tried to watch it in 15 or 20 years. And when I sat down and watched it, I hadn't done any of the prep. I hadn't read about the making of it. I hadn't watched any of the documentaries. I had I just queued up the movie and sat down and watched it. And it wasn't good. It was not a good movie. And when I say it wasn't a good movie, I mean the way that I judge a film in terms of script, performance, directing, editing, storytelling. It really did not hit any of those marks. And I, as I said, I think that's kind of a lazy take to say like, oh, Star Wars sucks, because it doesn't. So then I did do the work. I read the book about the making of Star Wars and I watched the first two episodes of Light and Magic so I understood even more about what they were doing in terms of the special effects and how unique that was, how incredible an accomplishment it was, even if watching it all now, it doesn't all hold up. You're going to hear Dan say something very important in, in the body of the episode to come, which addresses that. So I won't spoil it now. But I will say that when I sat down and watched the film a second time after doing that work, wow, did I have a whole new appreciation for the film. But you're also going to hear Bruce say something in this episode about re-watching Star Wars, which I think is very important to the point as well. And I won't spoil that either, except to say that now you're going to hear a portion of a conversation I had with my friend Bruce and with my friend Dan about this issue of kind of jumping in to rewatch Star Wars today and, and what it, what the experience is like, what it should be like in quotes, and what it might be like for you if you have occasion to revisit the movie yourself. So here's my conversation with those two guys. Thanks again for listening. bring both of you on because we've talked many times in the past. Dan, you've been on the podcast to talk Star Wars. Bruce, you've been on the podcast many times to talk science fiction. When I decided to do Star Wars on the pod, I obviously rewatched the film. Now, I'll be completely honest and say that when I rewatched it, I thought, wow, I didn't remember this being so bad. <laughs> then I went, and I think your, your guys both suggested the same thing, which was watch uh, light and magic on Disney plus, which is a, yeah. a five or six part documentary about the making of star Wars. Well, about the making of ILM about the making of ILM. Sorry. And then I read uh, a book whose name I should have here, but I don't, um, these guys have written a bunch of books. I, I read their books on star Trek and other things. When I've done them on the pod, they write sort of oral histories. They compile oral histories of things. And they wrote a pretty thorough book about star Wars. And in, in watching and reading those two things, I then rewatched the film. I had completely different, much more positive and almost overwhelming experience of appreciation for Star Wars. So I guess my esoteric starting point, and uh, I want to start with you, Dan, because you're the resident Star Wars person here. <laughs> my question for you is, so bad. Um, is it necessary now to have sort of an understanding of all of what was groundbreaking about Star Wars in 1977 to fully appreciate it? Or is 
that a product of how massive this thing became that it's almost hard to even get to the kernel of why it works if it works? I mean, I think 10 years ago, I would have told you, yes, you got to appreciate all the, all the things to, to that it contributed and, and all that stuff. But as I get older, it's like, maybe I, I, I think about, I just got married and I'm, you know, the sort of the baby conversation is being had. And I wonder all the time, like, what am I going to show my kids and in what order? Like I have a list and, um, and I'm worried, frankly, that Star Wars will hold no interest and I'll have to explain uh, all the things that are cool and it'll be like eating, like Star Wars will be like eating broccoli. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, that, is, that, is a, that is a legitimate worry that I have. I, I can uh, perhaps help with that. I have two boys. So my boys, for whatever reason, I tried tried not to push things on them, you know, like just like, oh, well, let's watch it. You know, definitely introducing the animated stuff, Disney, Pixar, all that. But then also like, oh, well, maybe we'll watch Star Wars now. And um, importantly, I took them actually just two weeks ago to a screening of A New Hope, the first Star Wars movie in a theater, which was the first time I saw it in a theater. Um, because I found that at home, they never, they would start watching a new hope and then they would just sort of wander away, uh, consistently. Well, but that's Every the landscape. That's the landscape that we live in now with like media being in our face 24 hours a day is just, we can walk away from shit. Well, well, right. So I was like, well, let's see what happens when they're in a dark theater and they can't walk away. Mm. Uh, and I tried to watch when their engagement <clears throat> went away. Uh, because as George Lucas has famously said many, many times, this is essentially, you know, primarily a story for children. Um, and so that aspect of it interests me, like what, where is their interest level and comparing it to a 1977 child watching it or 2022 child watching it. And at exactly the points they would lose interest at home, they lost interest in the theater and they just started squirming and talking. What about you, though, Bruce? What about you in the theater? Because you said this so, is the first time you have you happen to see it in the theater. Did you have a different experience? I did actually. I I it hit harder. It hit mm-hmm. more like whether it's the sound, whether it was the you know the wider screen, you know, sort of like being more immersed in it. It definitely plays better in a theater, at like a hundred percent. Like I know that that's sort of a cliche at this point to say like oh you have to see it in the theater and there are certain movies that are built for theaters but i do think that that's absolutely the case with with star wars um because uh, to jason's point a lot of what <laughs> shines on you know home viewing like the acting and you know certain other you know writing and dialogue that stuff is not as strong putting it i mildly. think i think we can all agree <laughs> that the acting and the writing and the and the dialogue uh, in particular, are sh- I, 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 but that's not why you go to see a Star Wars. Well, not, I mean, not, not all of it. I mean, I, let, right. let's, let's save that for a conversation. I do want to talk about the cast. And I want to talk about, as we do on the pod, who covers themselves in glory, who's okay, and who is not up to the task. We'll have that as a separate momentary conversation. But Dan, have you seen A New Hope in a movie theater? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And did, did you, I mean, are you a, per, are you a person? Because I think in a way, the way I think of you, Dan, let me tell you how I think of your reaction to Star tell Wars. Me you how tell I me am. how. Yeah, you can tell me how off I am. I think you're someone 
who doesn't complicate it for yourself, who loves and reads a lot and knows a lot about the canon and all the books and the comics and the different movies. And I think you're a guy who buys in and you don't need to deconstruct it the way I do. I'm the type of person I need to deconstruct it and then see if it goes back together again. And only then can I fully appreciate something in a movie. Now, I'm also capable of just being carted away and having an experience and not analyzing it while I'm having it. But when that happens, I do want to go back then and figure out how did they do that to me? And when I read a lot about Star Wars and a lot about George Lucas and where this came from for him, I realized that despite my first screen, my first rewatch recently was kind of about being too adult and not being able to just get carried away with it. And as Bruce just said, and George Lucas has said many, many times, once I read that thing, almost once I read it, it's like the lock tumblers fell into place. Once I read him say, look, this is for children. I think that's wrong, by the way. I think he's, I think he's full of shit. Well, he does say a lot of things. He, he, he's definitely capable of revising his own history with Star Wars. So we can talk about that too. But the point I think still sticks, which is if you view it through the lens of Hollywood in 1977 and the heaviness of what's going on in the country, the desire to make a filmed entertainment for kids of the sort he grew up in, he grew up with in the 50s, he, he accomplished that, like without doubt. And it of became course. the biggest thing that any of his cohorts could ever have done. But like in a lot of fundamental ways, it's still not good. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Back up for a second. Back up for a second. So first of all, uh, uh, if, if Robert Townsend said uh, Chinatown uh, was a family movie, he'd still be wrong. You mean okay. Robert Town? I mean, town, town. Um, right. Like it doesn't matter what the, what the director says in retrospect, that's sure. irrelevant. And I also don't really trust George Lucas, frankly, his well, skill set is world building. Well, that's it. Hold on. That's, Let, and he's great at it. I want to, I want to be careful not to slander George Lucas irreparably here. I, I will say that Dan, you, I, Bruce, we have not been fortunate enough in our lives to have a have a mountain fall on us, like fell on George Lucas in doing Star Wars. You can't almost judge whether it's bullshit that he now says, oh, I was influenced by Joseph Campbell and these books. Like there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people say is not truthful to what they observed at the right. time when he was trying to make the movie. Right. So it's almost like it's so big that even in the retelling, it's very hard for people to really get the truth of what happened. Fine. To put it to put it in in a non-angry way, uh, George Lucas is an unreliable narrator. Okay, that? that is that is a much better way to say it. But I but I would say I understand why he is. I don't blame him for that. In other words, it doesn't even matter. Like the thing he made is has been made. Okay, like it's separate from him. You know what well, I mean? Like he keeps fucking with it though. That's a separate story. And I think that's part well, of why I didn't like it in this first rewatch. By the I'll way, I'll be honest. I actually kind of I actually kind of dig it as as a. As a screenwriter who would love nothing more than to like go back and like get passes of like old that I've written, like mm -hmm. yeah, that, you would like that for your ego, but it's not even an ego thing. It's like I get it. It's like an it's like a it's like a um it's like an artist thing. It's like he's just like or it, well, or I mean, well, but to that point, he's had since nineteen ninety seven to go back in and and improve 
the really shitty special effects that he put in in 1997. I get that that was the best they could do at the time, but if you look at it now, it looks like garbage. It like it's like very obviously pasted over yeah. visual effects that the not only can he go in and and improve it, any VFX house in the world would sign up for free to go in and fix that stuff, and no one's doing it. And I I cannot understand why. Yeah, that part of it is weird. I mean, listen, I think uh, we mentioned this on the pod before that um, it's someone like David Fincher or Christopher Nolan, someone whose films I respect and admire said, look, oh, Bruce, it wasn't when we were talking about Alien. Uh, no, it was when we were talking about Blade Runner. And I can't remember, but one of those guys said, for me, Blade Runner is the fucked up studio version where they forced the ending on Ridley that now when we watch the Oh, right. Approved, approved directors. You know, there's like seven, it, same thing like Star Wars. There's like seven versions of Blade Runner. Now, when we watch Blade Runner for the pod, we're watching a version that did not come out when the movie came out. And it's a completely different ending, completely different emotional and philosophical underpinning with what the studio made him do, which the, the difference is, I guess, he willingly did that at the time because of the comments. Now, but when we watch that film, we like the new version better because it restores a certain uh, authenticity to the storytelling and having it end the way that it does. Now, once I read the book and 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 heard about what George Lucas was forced to deal with from an not only an uncomprehending studio system, which is of course par for the course for any filmmaker, especially for a movie like that, but really uncomprehending crew, uncomprehending cast. I mean, no one thought this was going to be anything. No, they were. They thought they were in B-movie city. And it was budgeted as that. So in a way, I do understand once it becomes what it becomes, a lot of things happen for George Lucas who can't handle anyone fucking with his shit. He self-funds the remaining movies. That's insane, but smart. Well, he also paid 500 large to, to start ILM. Right. He, he, he did that. Uh, but then he also went back and, and, and fixed some stuff that bothered him that he wasn't able to do because of the time frame. Now I get that, but to Bruce's point, like you got to fix Jabba. I mean, it just looks horrible. <laughs> well, Jabba the, was a man. Yeah. Originally he was a man, but you know, having Han Solo step over his tail and making it look like you literally <laughs> doing clip art on Microsoft word. That's another story. <laughs> Look, Java, even I get boarded sometimes. You think I had a choice? The thing I think in watching it again and trying to put myself in, in the shoes of someone in 1977 is that it, it, the success of the movie, I think, comes from a number of places. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to put percentages on it, but like definitely the creation of that motion capture camera changed Hollywood changed everything because once they saw that you were able to apply technology in a way that fully immerses you like that it, that's i feel like so much part of the success of why it became what it became but in addition the underlying movie that supported that leap forward mm -hmm. in how we experience entertainment which is what that was was that the story is very clever in being a mashup and i'm not old enough or learned enough to know if there were a large number of movies before 
Star Wars to take so many different elements, Westerns, samurais, uh, war films, you know, uh, dog fighting, serials, all of that to just to just really cleverly take pieces of all, you know, the the Legend of King Arthur, all of that stuff was so cleverly pulled from and laid out for this story. And I think people were just like, what the hell is this? This is great because it's so entertaining. It's, it is a say what you will about the quality of the filmmaking. The essential part of it is that it is supremely entertaining for those reasons. And uh, it's very similar. I think, I think, and I don't know that this has ever been said by Lucas. It's his, it's his answer to jaws in a way because jaws, when you watch it and I watch it at least once a year (laughs) is it's so it, like what the hell is that movie it's not a horror movie it's not an adventure movie it's not an action movie it's not a comedy but it has elements of all of those things and the baseline of it is it's just super entertaining every scene but, is entertaining every part of it is entertaining to my earlier point though bruce when you say it's entertaining if it's really entertaining shouldn't i be able at 53 years old to sit down rewatch the first star wars movie and be entertained without having to be informed about why i should be entertained can I take yes. another swing at that answer? Yes, Dan. No. And here's why. <laughs> here's why. Because Star Wars broke the mold in like four different profound ways in the film industry. Is that, can we agree on yeah, that? You're already giving me context about why I should be entertained. I'm telling you, shouldn't it just work without me having to put it in context is my right, like sight unseen you no, pull someone out from sit a- down, i watch it down i'm like holy yeah. shit no oh. no because no. so evolution context is required in order to understand the film um a a a a uh an That's the animal his argument an, falling apart an Bruce. animal that existed 10 million years ago right that doesn't eat as well as that animal that has evolved to today right that mm-hmm. like like, has like sharper teeth or better okay. eyes or whatever. Like, what do I care about the 10,000 year old animal that got, got the animal that I'm looking at eating well today, right? My point is Star Wars reinvented the wheel in a lot of ways. Yes. And then for the last uh, 40 years, 45 years, half a century, filmmakers more and more, by the way, because like, you know, 77, how many movies came out versus this year? So like exponentially more movies have taken from that, built on what it was, right? They've taken the foundation. If if Star Wars is the lobby, we're on, you know, the 200th floor. So you're saying that Star Wars is an influential film whose influence I, can be seen in other films. Yeah, and, and like the reason you're bored by it is because not is not because it was a different movie back then is because you've had 50 years of watching movies that saw star Wars and then did it better or like, or like improved upon it. Right. You've seen better special effects. You've seen better storytelling. You've seen better, like using all that you're talking about and they've evolved it. So like, it's the same reason, like I'm, 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 I, you know, I do this for a living. Like I don't need to watch the cabinet of Dr. Caligari to make a movie like I, like I know what a movie is and like, yeah, sure. Does it help me like have depth and, and like a well-rounded knowledge of filmmaking? Sure. But like, you're going to tell me that like Ryan, like Johnson has like seen all of the Chaplin movies and like has seen all of, you know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, well, maybe he has, I don't know, but I get your point. But I also think if you look at influent films, 
it's funny that you're saying that because I just watched uh, the trailer for what's it called? Andorra or Andor? Andor. Andor. Yeah. By and, the way, Andor, I've watched. Have you? Have no, you I haven't watched? seen it yet. I've seen two of them. Good. So I've watched all three. Would you agree that it's like, it's like Blade Runner in Star Wars? Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to, yeah. that's my point that I was going to make is that, I mean, to me, in terms of science fiction films, Blade Runner is way more visibly influential sure. than Star Wars has been. Sure. Well, 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 we'll get to that. But like, and just on Andor real quick, it, it, much like Rogue One, it's probably the best of the current crop of Star Wars stuff oh, because by a long shot. it is, it's it, inarguably the adult version of Star Wars. It's just its own thing. It's like, it's not trying to like pan yeah. at anybody. It's like, it's patient. It's group group agreement that Rogue One is the best pure Star Wars movie ever made. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As far it's as the one, what, does that, what does that mean? It means sure. in terms of what I was just saying, going to a movie and being enthralled, entertained, and witness to top shelf, top quality everything. No other film in the Star Wars canon is as good as Rogue One. Like out of context. Like for instance, I like to call it the the girlfriend Star Wars movie. If you're trying to <laughs> if you're trying to get your girlfriend to watch a Star Wars movie, show her Rogue One because if she has absolutely no context, no interest, like my wife who calls Chewbacca, that teddy bear man, like, I mean, the, no. like, if Not I'm going to get her to watch something, watch Rogue One because it's, it's, you don't need to know anything else. It's this contained story. It's great. I think, I think Empire just kicks the shit out of everything story wise. And like, yes, the effects are better in Rogue One <laughs> for sure. But like, yeah, I think Empire Strikes Back was made in 1983. Yes, but there is stuff in Empire Strikes Back to a novice or, or someone who's not already sort of like who doesn't have buy-in necessarily to like sci-fi and fantasy and all that that are just plain silly. You're going to tell me just, you need buy-in to enjoy Empire? Yeah, I do. So we're coming from, I'm coming from a standpoint of someone who did not, like you and I, I assume, grow up with this stuff and and are primed for this stuff, right? If you're talking to someone who grew up on like, you know, uh, Marvel party of five or something. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like regular people, you know, they're not, they're going to look at pour some out for the people that grew up on party of five. <laughs> they're going to look at uh, empire strikes back and go, why are there snakes on this planet? Why does that little green man talk backwards? Why it's, it, that's going to take them out of it. And it's going to distract from what is a very well-told story and, and very, very well done. But there's stuff in that, that, it's not possible to get past and Rogue One I'm doesn't gonna, have any of that. Rogue I'm going to draw a line between buy-in and being dumb. Like if you're, if you're like, why is that guy talking backwards? Like Fuck you go away. I'm like, not, don't watch movies. I'm, like it's not I'm for not you. Saying, I'm with you uh, to a large degree, but I'm not saying that if they, they're correct in that. I'm just saying that those elements require some like suspension of disbelief that, a movie like Rogue One does not require of you necessarily. And That's I will tell I'm telling you, I will open palm slap somebody <laughs> who comes to me and says, Why is Yoda talking back? Why is okay, that you, you may not be the most impartial person to discuss Star Wars Dan, with an open you're here. hand? You're, you're, that's why you're here. Let me let me put it to you this way. I said this before on the pod when we did uh, Close Encounters, uh, which came out in the same year as Star Wars, which is always kind of surprising to remember. To they had a bet. Did you know this? Did you know this? Spielberg yeah, the, I, I learned this in in the Light and Magic thing. That was crazy. And not only did they have a bet, but they traded two and a half percent 
of so each other's movies. Spielberg, Wait, what? I thought the bet. I thought that was the bet. I thought the, that they traded a point. They traded. Well, yeah, but I mean, well, the, the the overarching bet was whose film was going to be more successful, and mm. the the stakes were to even it out. I guess they were going to trade percentages so that regardless of whose film was more successful, they both make a shit ton of money. Now that's a delightful anecdote about that sounds way too good to be rich white men getting richer. I can't believe Steven Spielberg got two and a half percent of of Star Wars in perpetuity. So I don't know if that's really true, but it's a great story. Let's not disabuse it here. However, I said this before, I am old enough. I remember seeing Star Wars in a theater in 1977 as a child, but I don't remember my reaction to it per se. It wasn't that formative for me. I've said before, like, I realize now I was more of a Close Encounters kid. That movie gave me more of what I was about as a kid, even at eight or nine years old, than Star Wars did. Well, Um, Spielberg's a better director. Spielberg's a better director. It's a better, it's a, it's a better written movie. He's a better uh, marshaller of all the different resources. Like, I think even George Lucas and a lot of the people involved in the making of ILM all point out and are absolutely right to point out that it's a fucking miracle that the film ever got completed and released to begin with. Like, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that close, that close encounters is a, is a better it's, made. Well, it's definitely movie. it's more, it, well, it's, but the difference is to your point though, it's a, it's a film for adults more, more than it's a film for children. You know, right. ET is a, is a film for children, but Close Encounters is really a weighty adult movie about adult stuff. It's not yeah, a but, for yeah. kids. By the way, saying that something is for kids primarily not does not mean it's bad. No. No, it's you a cop-out. Like, and also, I don't believe that Lucas thought he was making a fuck. He, oh, he thought he was making a, 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 he thought he, he was making a space opera. Yeah, for and kids. That, I don't buy it. Oh, he was absolutely making it for the kid version of himself. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that he meant like it's for kids. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter if it's not good. Yeah. Uh, because he defaults to a, a Long Island accent when when he talks <laughs> like that. But it, it's more that he meant like it's not it's like for instance, I like to revisit movies all the time, and usually I go back to a movie, notice other things, have a different experience. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is very unique in that I go back to it and I have the same exact reaction I had to it like 20 years ago. That's fascinating. You know, like, you know what? Do you know what? Other movie nothing heard, else right? from this. There's nothing do you know? Do you know what another movie that I have that reaction to? Starship Troopers. Hmm. Yeah, but Starship Troopers, which I was going to do on the pod with Billy Kimball, but we he, we haven't pinned it down yet. Um, I've only seen Starship Troopers once. Well, I can't imagine there's a, a treasure trove of subtlety. I mean, I get the no, but it's a, it, it, it. Well, first of all, you have to read the book. Okay. And second of all, um, you will love the book. Um, but I thought the movie uh, was completely different from the book. It is. It's right. it's the movie is a satire. Yeah, I get that, Dan. Thanks. <laughs> let me tell you about. Let me tell you about. Tell me how satire and comedy works, Dan. Casper Van Dien. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I mean, like, my point is, Dan. I could watch. I, I mean, in terms of like delightful times, and I'm going to get a hundred different levels of right. genius, nuance, and appreciation. To Bruce's point, I but I ha, but I do have to say this: two totally different experiences rewatching Star Wars within a span of 72 hours in preparation for this pod. So, what and changed? I I had enough information to your point to understand how groundbreaking what I was looking at really was. Right. And right. when I watched it the first time. 
I wasn't as knowledgeable about how difficult it was to do the special effect shots. To your point, Bruce, of course, you know, um, 2001, which is my favorite movie of all time, you know, comes out 10 years before this and sets a standard that really still holds up. You can, without ever, by the way, without the film ever being fucked with again by the director, it's a movie that still visually holds up. The effects do not look cheap, cheesy, or cheap and cheerful. However, I didn't, I didn't realize that as Lucas says, he wanted stuff to go fast. Everything you look at, even in close encounters, uh, they can make the light go fast, but the ships have to be slow because of the level of the motion capture cameras they were working with. Doug Trumbull's Campbell, Doug Trumbull was doing the special effects work for close encounters. That's why he wasn't doing them for star Wars at the same time. But the, but the innovation at ILM was the ability to create that sense of speed, which everything in 2001 moves like at Walt's time, because that's what they could do with the cameras. Like you kind of have to understand that to your point, Dan, you have to go back and remember that that was not possible to do on film prior to star Wars. Well, but like a top hat's just a top hat until you, until you, until someone says that's the hat that Lincoln died in. Right. Like you, you like appreciating something like that. Like, like speaking of 2001, you know, you know how they did this, sh the shot with a pen, right? The floating pen. Mm -hmm. Right. Big sheet of glass that like goes outside the frame and there's mm -hmm. just two grips, just like making it go. Ooh. Mm -hmm. That does that nowadays that doesn't ring any bells for anyone. Right. Nobody cares about a floating pen that you can you can do that on a fucking MacBook Air in two hours. But in terms of like technical, like, you know, yeah enterprise, like enterprising spirit like that, you watch that and you're like, oh, yeah. That's really cool. I, I appreciate that a lot more now that I know that. And Star Wars just ha is lousy with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, and that's that's why I think that's why as a movie, like no, like it doesn't like given the evolution, like, no, I'm not impressed with the to go back to my uh Darwin analogy, like I'm not impressed with like the little fucking penguin that like doesn't have sharp teeth and like can't see very well because it's evolved over 10 million years to be this thing that like yeah, but fucking... nobody chose to make a penguin unless you believe in god so i mean someone well, sets out to make a movie you know what i mean it's a different i i, I like the analogy because it's going to give me a great teasable thing to embarrass you with which is like some convoluted <laughs> evolutionary analogy related to star wars i'll have to Are you gonna go through that and count all my i'm gonna go through and figure use. that out but my question I, is well i i feel like just to that point just to build off of that a little bit when Jason says it's not a great movie, and when I say that's not a great movie, what we mean is, and the pen point is, is perfect, it, with 2001, regardless of the special effects, regardless of the, of the innovations made, the, the story that's being told about the evolution of mankind and technology and everything is summed up in both the bone being thrown up in the air and becoming a, a, the spaceship and the pen floating in outer space. Like there are visual, there's visual storytelling going on that has a greater meaning outside of what you're watching. Mm -hmm. With Star Wars, it is brilliant and entertaining at being this fun, zippy story and how it tells you that with all the technology that was involved and created for it is inarguably groundbreaking and fantastic. And, and, and should be appreciated. Yeah. And should be appreciated. But as a movie itself, there's not a lot going on where you're like, 
that was really clever filmmaking. There is one bit that I absolutely love that, and I don't know if he stole it from somewhere or not, but it is a pure sort of filmmaking moment Two, actually, I, I would argue. One is when Obi-Wan is escaping the Death Star or trying to after turning off the, uh, whatchamacallit, the tractor, uh, beam. tractor beam. beam, thank you. And he comes into the hall and he stops and then they just cut and Darth Vader is already waiting there with his lightsaber mm. lit. Like that, that's a moment. That's like, oh shit, this guy's waiting a, for him. That's not an effects moment. You're talking about a right. dramatic moment. But, I'm, I, but, but that's not my point. It's delivered. a storytelling Okay, I got, I got you. It's like everything congeals to be this like, Yes, you you know what's going on. You don't that have was, to. That be is told a and, goosebump. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking. Right, about it. like it's like oh shit. Yeah. And the other thing, and it's it's more of a comedic thing, and it's it's to the brilliance of George Lucas in that you know how clever he was at combining things. When Han Solo, the cog, you know, it's a character moment and a story moment where Han Solo's like yeah, and he chases the stormtroopers, but then he comes running back <laughs> because there's like 15 of them. Like right. that's brilling. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know, he and, added more in the in the in yeah. The well. Sure, but like there were the like there were like that, three. <laughs> so it wasn't as good of a moment. Right. But yeah, but the, okay, so maybe that's one moment where that, that stuff was actually improved. But like it, it delivers. It, that kind of storytelling was not on large display in the rest of the movie. But to um, your point about Darth Vader though, yeah. One of those moments for me, even in the first rewatch, Darth Vader to come up with that. And that's where I want to, this is where I want to single out when I sent you guys a list of heroes of Star Wars. I mean, Ralph McQuarrie almost, you can't say more than George Lucas because Star Wars doesn't happen without George Lucas. So it's impossible to say what I'm about to say, but without Ralph McQuarrie, none of this is what it is. I mean, the visual sense of Darth Vader of all of these things really comes from Ralph McQuarrie taking ideas and rough sketches and things that Yes, George Lucas was trying to describe to him, but it's it's really a lot of Ralph McQuarrie's design that you're responding to. When you look at how Darth Vader looks, that's Ralph McQuarrie. And the also, first thing but like Darth Vader, and, and that's and that's the other thing, just to just to slow down for a second, like Star Wars also gives you the the greatest villain of all f- time. So like you can say it's not a great movie, this and that and the other thing. Well, but Dan, like, let me finish my fucking point. That's what I was <laughs> going to say. But thank I you just for wanted interrupting to get to me it first. Getting into it first. <laughs> what I was going to say was in the very opening scene of the film, when that mist and smoke clears, and this it, it's one of those moments where you do have to stop down now and say that you have no visual reference for what that is at the time, except a Nazi because the helmet to me is yeah. very referential to, to Nazi symbolism. But when he comes out of that smoke with the cape and that headpiece, it is <laughs> it's like, there is no, I totally agree with you You're like, what and who is that? And, and when you, hear James Earl Jones's voice, which is, it is, I give a lot of credit to David Prowse for physically embodying Darth Vader, because I don't think he gets enough credit for how important the physicality of Vader's body movements really are when married with, it's not just that James Earl Jones does the voice. It's not just that, you know, David Prowse does a really amazing job embodying the physicality of Vader. But it's hilarious in the outtakes on the on the Apple version. There's one scene where you hear David Prowse's voice. Yeah. And I love the David Prowse story where he's so heartbroken to be told 
that they're stripping out his voice because he has this completely agricultural English accent. They called him Darth Farmer. The Imperial Senate on a diplomatic... You are part of the rebel alliance and a traitor. Take her away. I mean, it, it clearly would not work with his voice. But man, you are right, Dan. Or at least I was right. And then you took credit for it. I don't know how it worked. But yes, creating Vader alone. Um and lightsabers and the force and the jedi like all that shit i mean it's just it's the the thing that here's here's what i'll say but if i rewatch if i rewatch empire is that a better movie i haven't rewatched it so i don't know yet i'm saving that i don't want to get into a discussion of empire but i mean is it going to be exponentially better as a film there is no need for a, a conversation about empire because empire is perfect the end Okay, Bruce. Well, so yeah, no, it is. It's a great movie, but what it what it does better is a lot of the things that were lacking in Star Wars in terms of like character nuance yes. and you know 100%. gray tones and things like like stuff that is not uh, obvious in Star Wars. Like is made much more obvious in Empire and there's better action debate, scenes and better just, twist. Yeah, like it just gets. By know, the way. Am I the am I the only idiot who didn't know until yesterday that George Lucas didn't direct Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, I, we, yeah we no, he didn't direct any Star Wars movie except no, the first one in the I middle. No, I you are the no, only. You are the last one to know. I am the last to know. Yes. Yeah. Now, my but now everyone knows. Is that so why it's good. better? Um, oh yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Lucas is not a good director. He's but not. Hold on, but hold on, I did go back. And I re and I well I had never actually seen it. I watched, I watched THX, THX 1138, which talk about being. I mean, if you think Blade Runner is an influential, oh, was that his was that well, his USC movie? Yeah, but then he made it into a feature. He made it into a full feature. It is visually among the most brilliant films I've ever seen, and I'm not overstating that. I mean, Blade Runner is influenced by THX 1138 in so many ways. He is a good director there, but is the movie great. gobbledygook? What? No. But is the movie gobbledygook? No, no, it's very non-linear, but it's a piece of art and it's visually and I mean, it's Walter Murch doing the sound. So it's genius in terms of sound, in terms of visuals. It's very much of its time in non-linear storytelling, hmm. but I thought it was incredibly uh, visually brilliant and, and sonically brilliant. And by the way, I also rewatched American Graffiti, which is a really well-directed movie. Yes, it is. George Lucas could really direct and do interesting shit. And American Graffiti, for all of its like 50s corniness, is a pretty bold narrative experiment for its time. And if you watch it again, I think you'll be very, as I was, I was very impressed that these two, these two completely polar opposite films were made by the same guy. Now, it's, it's, it's a canard with Lucas that, again, once the avalanche of Star Wars falls on him, he never does the stuff he said he wanted to do when he was a contemporary of Spielberg and Coppola and De Palma, which is, I just want to make weird little experimental art movies. Well, that's what he did with Indiana Jones. I mean, he didn't direct it or write it, but like it was his story. Yeah, but he never again directed anything of note, put it that way. Well, I do think George Lucas can be a, a, a great director and was a great director at least three times. Mm -hmm. uh, but he kind of proved him proved out Dan's theory with the original with the one, two, and three trilogy, however you want to put it, uh, because those are not good movies. I mean, the third one, Revenge of the Sith, is is decent. It's better, 
but he he has completely lost at that point what made Star Wars successful and specifically a new hope successful was the characters that they're they're really they're fun they're they're people you want to hang out i with. just watch they, you know, i just to, watch those those movies now just to still? like live in the world yeah sure if they're on yeah really? i mean i won't i i don't think i've put any of the prequels on but like if they're on i'll i'll, I'll usually stay on it and like actually no that's not true i put on i put on revenge of the sith uh maybe a year ago but like it like it's you don't watch those because they're you know you watch them to hang out in the in the world well you know what I mean? right the more recent ones, you know, I was thinking this as I, as I watched, uh, I'm just going to call it star Wars. Cause this whole new hope bullshit and all this stuff is just yeah, put yeah, on yeah. after the sure. fact, just call it star Wars. That's the name of the film. When I watched star Wars, I thought, you know, now I kind of understand where, even though there are things about the most recent three movies, uh, or four, if you include rogue one, it's that it got ponderous and self-serious, whereas Star Wars is this Flash Gordon childhood serial movie. And the ponderous self-seriousness, even though, my God, the, it, the, it's a Vader for the ages. I mean, that's a saving grace, right? Uh, even though I think Mark Hamill, who can't act at all in Star Wars, actually does deliver the goods when he has to in the last film. He delivers that moment because he's aged and he's come to represent and mean this thing. And it, as an actor can only do later in his career, way Harrison Ford did in Blade Runner 2049, you're not just watching an older actor recreate a character, you're, you're watching the passage of time and it, and it does freight that moment in a positive and meaningful way. I think you're also thinking that because you watched Harrison, phone, Harrison Ford phone it in so hard <laughs> right before and Probably. yeah anyone 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 doing a cold read it would look like fucking sir Lawrence olivier after <laughs> that phone in so you're you're saying that harrison ford's performance in the later star wars movie is not are you up. saying that harrison ford gave a flying fuck about that performance i actually don't even remember him in the movies to be exactly honest is he in all three of those no he dies in the first one Okay, I don't know. Well, even, he comes. I know that he died, but I don't even remember. I couldn't tell you any moment. Exa like, I could remember exactly. Adam Driver moments. I could remember Mark Hamill yeah. moments. I could remember yeah. Carrie Fisher moments, but I have no memory at all of any hand, hand solo moments. Case yeah. closed. <laughs> yeah, there's a. He does come back in Rise of Skywalker. Oh, yeah. Very yeah, quickly. Bit. But again, very quick moment. Um, I think, though, but I, you know, to that point, I don't know if you want to jump into that subject now, but. Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, they do a lot of the heavy lifting for Star Wars. Okay, let's, getting us let's talk about the cast. Let's talk about the cast. I'm going to give you my list of people that I give top marks to. These are people whose performances in Star Wars, I think, are the best. This may be strange or controversial. Anthony Daniels. Oh, hell yeah. Protocol. Why, it's my primary function, sir. I am well-versed in all the customs. David yeah. Prowse. Yep. Peter uh, Mayhew. Yes. James Earl Jones and Peter Cushing. That's yeah. it. That's not controversial. Okay. Uh, but I, you don't like Harrison Ford or Carrie Fisher in it? No. Interesting. No. I'm going to get to that. But these are my, these, those people, to your point earlier, Dan, like I didn't have to appreciate the effects because you're right at that age in a, in a, in a cinema seeing the ship fly over your head, hearing the music come in. I mean, you're blown away. It, it transports you and, and it did what Lucas intended it to do at the time. Yeah. But when I watch the movie now, I'm thinking, my God, Anthony Daniels is 
doing something totally unique and crazy. Uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, you'll probably know this. I think he's the only person to appear in all nine all Star yep. Wars films. Yes, sir. Which is interesting. That is true. I think David Prowse, as I said, um, he, I, I don't know. Sometimes I he tune into the physicality of, to me. No, I think he, I think Vader. I, here's another thing I forgot. Little little too, like finger wagging. It's no, like, you're I, the most I, powerful I, dude in the universe. Oh, no, I thought he was powerful. I thought his physicality was very powerful. And I also think this. I forgot this that like the the other Empire guys think Vader's a joke. <laughs> Like, oh, yeah. He's not this all powerful person to them at all. The force is considered a joke kind of on both sides of the law here. Yeah. And in that first scene where he's not someone that guy's afraid of mouthing off to, even though Vader then like pinches his neck and they put that rumble. Yeah, sound he's in. the he's the empire, he's the uh he's the emperor's he's like a henchman. Clown. He's yeah. a henchman. Um, but like barely a henchman. So I yeah. think David Prowse's physicality, I think Peter Mayhew. Oh as Chewie's physicality is also brilliant. And I think you see more of him because you get to see the eyes and you, he's manipulating the mouth in a different way. I, I think Peter Mayhew deserves a lot of credit for the physical embodiment Peter of Chewie. I think Peter Mayhew controlled the mouth. I think those were really sure controlled. No, he's not really controlled. He had little pulleys and shit inside the head. But like, what's he using to control it is my point. I don't know, Dan. Well, isn't it? Isn't it? He's got two as, fucking uh, hands. His eyes. <laughs> isn't eye. it the same as uh, as uh, Planet of the Apes? It's just like a little chin thing that pulls down when you move your chin. I mean, yeah, it got more sophisticated. Own, he's moving his own jaw. I mean. Yeah. So. And James. Yeah, Old but Trump there was. Said, I think there was more. Man, this I, I'm not sure about this. This is not a podcast where we're going to nerd out over who pulled the mouth string. You can do that on your own time. That's my new podcast coming up. Good for you. Um, mouth strings called, called James mouth Jones, strings as a, as a piece of vocal acting after the fact is phenomenal and insane and incredible. George had hired David Prowse, but he said he wanted a so-called darker voice and not, not in terms of ethnic, but in terms of um, timbre. And the rumor is that he thought of Orson Welles uh, and then probably thought that Orson might be too recognizable. So what he ends up is picking a, a voice that was born in Mississippi, raised in Michigan, and was a stutterer. And uh, that happened to be my voice. I want to know what happened to the plans they sent you. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. You are part of a rebel alliance and a traitor. Take it away! Wait, did Mayhew do those sounds? Yeah. And Peter Cushing. Let's give a shout out. I think Peter Cushing is really good. He's the king. He was even um, good at Rogue One. <laughs> and that's so those those get my top marks. Acquit, acquitting themselves reasonably well is my second category. Harrison Ford, Carrie yeah. Fisher, Alec Guinness. Well, Alec Guinness didn't give a f Porkins. Who? <laughs> Porkins. Oh, oh yeah, sure. And the Jawas. Those those people acquit themselves reasonably. Jawas don't get top marks. What no, what no. what what points do you deduct from the fucking Jawas, man? You have um, no just heart because they don't. I mean, all they do all it's just a bunch of little kids running around in coats. That's what Jawas are, man. You know, it's they're skaters. They're uh, like listen. skateboard kids at the fucking skate park. Yeah, but they just didn't. They didn't blow me away. I, I take points away from Alec Guinness, who's good, but that has got to be the lamest action sequence that's supposed to have so much import. That battle that you did say, Bruce, so accurately, that moment when Vader is sitting there waiting with the lightsaber is is amazing. But that 
that sort of fight that, sucks. that happens is so lame. It's so and the, and the sad thing is, is like you know how bad that kills because oh, like they're yeah. they're all making up for it with all the like lightsaber battles. Yes, with Obi Wan like in the in the Obi Wan <laughs> show, like they're all just like all of them are even though probably some of the fight coordinators like it, yeah. this happened before they were born, but they're still embarrassed by they're it. Still embarrassed. It doesn't, so like it they're doesn't just trying up. way too hard to like no, go gotta, way over the top. I got to give Alec a demerit for that. I'm sorry, it's not his fault. Well, but- also he phoned it in too. He didn't give well, a fuck. He hated 100%. making that movie. I don't think he, well, no, I don't know. Famously hate. I have, not, I have not read that he hated it. I, I read that he you was kindly and, um, sure. But he didn't like everyone. it. He was like, this is stupid. I don't well, get of course, it. But everyone thought it was stupid. I mean, it was stupid. It well, looked stupid when you were filming it. Famously <laughs> the crew, which is another great part of the story. And we had this also, uh, the British crews working with directors when we did the Muppet show. I didn't know that the Muppet show was completely shot at Elstree Studios, which was actually, this was Muppet show was happening across the street from Star Wars. And wow. And Lucas and Jim Henson hung out. And there's a famous moment where Jim Henson sent someone in a Darth Vader outfit to give a cake to Jim Henson when he started filming, I think, uh, that crazy movie that he made. Um, but anyway, the British crews famously at the time work stops at 530. That's it. There's none of this American auteur shit. We're not working till four o'clock in the morning like we can do in Los Angeles. Um, and they had a very dark sense of humor. And they would say of Chewbacca scenes, hey, get some more light on the dog or <laughs> get some more light on the rug. Like they were not treating this with any, <laughs> any sort of interest or sincerity. So those are my acquitted reasons. Well, but actually I didn't read that. Al- I mean, other than what are we doing here? This is kind of insane. Um, but he had, at least in his own telling after the fact, in his voice, you can hear him say this, he had good reasons for doing it aside from the money. Oh, no one, no one. Yeah. No one's saying he shouldn't have done it, but he was just, I think he regret, I think, I think, I he, think spent- he did the best he could do with the script, which George Lucas is not a great writer. I mean, he's the first person to say that. I mean, probably yeah. what's ever good in the script dialogue wise didn't come from it. It came from the two people that he tapped. Agreed. Lawrence Kazan. Um, no, it wasn't Kazan. It was a. It's a woman and a man who are credited. Oh, people, who were Gloria here. and Albert yeah. Hyuk or whatever Hyuk. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Now here, here, my third category is back to acting class. <laughs> you relate to this, Dan. Mark Hamill. Sure. Um, all the rebel soldiers are pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the stormtroopers are pathetic. I mean, that's a little harsh. I- I mean, the rebel soldiers, man, the, that, oh, that the rebels are bad. Those outfits, uh, those, those like horseshoe crab helmets. I mean, those, those people don't scare anybody. That is just, well, they're supposed to be like a makeshift army. You know what I mean? I like guess. they're like, they're but like rotters, but the, yeah. I'm talking about the acting, the, the line delivery is like, you, you got to be able to find some people who can actually deliver lines and they didn't do that. There's too many of them. <laughs> <laughs> and also another thing that doesn't really work in the film's favor is all the redubbed dialogue after the fact, which I understand production-wise why they had to do that. But when you watch it now, it really takes me out of a movie to have that kind of Italian approach where we're going to film everything and then everything is pretty much redubbed. Well, you know why they did that, right? Do you guys know about the edit, like the first cut? Basically, the first assem- the first cut, the first assembly of Star Wars was uh, screened for like a handful of Lucas's friends, including De Palma and Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And De Palma gets up and according to Spielberg, just loses his 
fucking mind. Like this doesn't make any sense. This is ridiculous. What did I just watch? Like he is furious and they go back and I mean, the way the story goes and this is there are multiple accounts and there are lots of like YouTube videos called, um, you know, Star Wars was saved in the edit, which every movie is saved in the edit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, but this one in particular, like there were some really, really bad, bad things in in the first cut. Uh, You know, there was like not not for nothing, but like, you know, there was like footage of like world war two dog fighting for the, yeah. you know, well, they just didn't have the scenes. They didn't have the effects. Yeah, yeah. And like, and all that, and like, you know, James Earl Jones wasn't in it yet, but uh, there were a couple of like really egregious things. So like in act one, um, you cut down to Tatooine way earlier and there's a new scene with Luke. Do you guys know about this? I watched with the friends at I think that, station. I think yeah. that should have been in the movie. I think I watched that scene and it works in a way that I, and Lucas thought that it worked and wanted it in the movie. It wasn't him that wanted to take it out. It's an American graffiti scene. Sure. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. And like, he's watching this, he's watching the space fight. And by the way, Mark Hamill's really good in that scene. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it's actually instructive to watch the deleted. It's probably thing. his audition scene. Cause he's probably done it so many well, times. I don't know, but it's like, they gave him something to do that wasn't just like, I don't know. You know, like he, he yeah. has, Gee, Willikers. he has some, it's an interesting dramatic moment because he's not well regarded by some of the people in the scene, but the bigs friend who then it, it gives, it makes sense for like, why is this amazing reunion happening in the hangar at the end of the movie with bigs? Yeah. I never cared. I never cared so much about that. I was like, Oh, that's a guy he used to know, but it's character development, which we don't get any of otherwise in star Wars. So to me, and that's, and that's fair. But what they, what, what I think they did it for was to, they, so they cut all, they, there were like two or three scenes that Luke, that Luke had on Tatooine before the droids escape mm-hmm. in the pod um, to crash land on Tatooine. And I think what they did it for is this is their first time on a planet in star Wars, right? Like in the mm-hmm. whole thing. So nobody's seen, so they land on this thing and uh, it's an alien planet. And the first thing they see are Jawas. So the like tension, the mystery, the like, holy shit, anything could happen here. We don't know if there are humans here, mm-hmm. you know, all that tension, all that suspense, all that world building, right. Is gone is flushed by with those scenes. So I think Agreed. George Lucas favored his world building instincts over mm-hmm. good storytelling. Cause I think you're right. I think it's a better establishment yeah. of, Cause it's cool. Like a kid, like he was looking up at the moons yep. and the we way seen we flashes it, but, in the sky and now flashes in the sky. Like that's way more exciting. And he's like, Oh man, yeah. I want to be a fighter pilot. And like, you get to do that before he's talking to uncle Ben. The second thing that was huge, which they totally f***ed with was the battle of Yavin at the end, the, the death star run, um, the, the assault. On you the can just call star it run. death star run. You have to call it the battle of Yavin because it's called the fucking battle of Yavin, Jason. Jason, Jason, uh, Star Wars nerds are, myself included, so bad with this stuff. Like, there is a terminology, much like Anno Domini and Before Christ, that called BBY, and you put the number of years before the Battle of Yavin when you're describing things that have happened before that. Yeah, that's part of why this annoys the shit out of so many people. Well, so actually, if you watch Andor, you'll see BBY5. That's what that means, by the it way. It says that literally on the screen? I swear yeah. to God. Oh, God. Yeah, that that is true. I'm never going to watch that. <laughs> so, so the Battle of Yavin actually didn't have Yavin in it. It, it was, was just... No Death Star. 
no, no, the Death Star was there. Yavin was the ba- was the planet the Rebel base was. Oh, okay, that's and the they one were circling around the moon for. to shoot it. Ten seconds to destruct. But the first, the script, the production, mm. they didn't shoot that. It was just because the rebels descended upon the Death Star and mass murdered a whole bunch of fucking bad guys. But you know what ends up being genius is all the stuff that was in his overstuffed multiple versions of the script before they shot Star Wars that he cut out and left out is the roadmap for everything that comes since. So in a way, it turned out to be kind of a smart move. But this was uh, this part was underwritten. The final climax of the movie, the final movie that he went that he went pitched to studios and like mm-hmm. sold and like was going to shoot had no dramatic tension in it whatsoever. There were no stakes. It was well, yeah, cuz he was I think he was a gearhead to a large extent and loved like the speed of it and just wanted loved those old World War II movies and was really just looking at it like this is going to be dope and not yeah. really thinking like and Paul Hirsch if you guys read his book which is a great book by the way uh, I think it's called From an Editing Room Far, Far Away. Great uh, he added the shot right before the Death Star blows up of of um, uh, Tarkin. That That's oh. his name, right? Yes. He's just like standing there waiting like, my. I'm totally confident this plan is going to work. And then boom, the boom. thing blows up. <laughs> and he added that in because to, to Dan's point, the it was it felt uh, not personal. It felt like, well, there was nothing machines. at stake that right. like, if they don't win, then the death star just continues to float instead of killing the entire resistance. The storytelling the let's save, let's blow up the death star thing. Like that's, that's a huge really... problem to not have yeah, stakes. It doesn't really play dramatically though. Like, Dude, if you a... watched it without, without them, without the Death Star circling around the moon to destroy the Rebel Alliance in its entirety forever, I'm just saying it doesn't it's, play. It's it's a pinball shot that Luke has to make in a in an alley. Yeah, that's goofy. But like, but my point is like there was there was no like if they lose nothing nothing adverse happens to them. That's well, yeah, it, it was more about I think Luke's acceptance of being a hero and understanding the Force and all that, but. I, I feel like I have nitpicks with that whole Yavin scene because they keep cutting back and saying, like, oh, we're arriving in five minutes and we have to get around the planet. You're a, a spaceship. You can go whatever fucking direction you want. Which, well, let's not get in the weeds. On you know what I mean? Like that's Star Wars. That, when but, people. But when when Star Wars nerds start picking out things from yeah. the recent movies that don't make sense, I'm like, you you, you want to start with what doesn't make sense? But here, but, that was, but that was Wait, but on, that was but that was. Okay, that, was Marshall, Paul, that was Marshall. That was Marshall directing the conversation. Okay. To Dan's introduction of the famous screening, which to Spielberg's credit, he's the only person at that screening who came up to George Lucas and said, "Wow, you just made probably the biggest movie of all time." Uh, no yeah. one else really got it. I heard. I don't know. The version in the book is that De Palma wasn't screaming and stomping, but that he said, which is even better. He said, when it was over. And George said, what did you think? De Palma just said, I think I should go upstairs and walked away and went upstairs, which to me is a very true, like Dan, you know, in the theater world, you guys have millions of ways to say something sucked after when you have to see the people. Like, uh, and and I think they say in the book, one guy goes, you know, I I had practiced that. I said, well, you made a movie, didn't you? Uh, you All kinds of sort of things like that when you don't know what else to say. My thing when I, when I go to see a show that I did not care for and my, uh, like a friend of mine was Mm -hmm. in it or wrote it or directed it, I'll go, you did it again. (laughs) (laughs) 
which I love because everyone knows what you're saying there. You've all agreed to just use these code, code phrases, but maybe people don't know listening to the pod. De Palma actually rewrote the crawl, the famous crawl, and helped yeah. Lucas ra- wrangle that into shape because that was typically it was like a it was like a novella. It was like a novella. It was like all of the what are the what are the famous uh, what is it space balls that mocks like the crawl that goes on for seven minutes yeah, yeah. and then the the ship also goes on for seven minutes going across the screen. So, <laughs> um, and also since this is a podcast that tries to give credit to studio executives when they deserve it, Alan Ladd Jr. Laddie as he was known at the time. Sure. This guy was so important to so many incredible films and yeah. said yes when everyone else said no out of either a genius or just a, hey, trust intelligent, creative people and hope that it works out, which is probably what he did here. Yeah. No one had any idea. Um, the business of Star Wars is another interesting topic. I may, maybe I'll do another, another whole episode just about the crazy business of Star Wars and the weird shit that Lucas was smart enough to do or stubborn enough to to insist upon. I, I would also add one to the list of top marks. Yeah. Okay. Who? Marsha Lucas. Yes. Bruce said that too. I, I also have uh, Marsha Lucas does deserve a, a tremendous amount of credit for basically taking, she, she took the fan fiction that he had written essentially right. and turned it into something palatable, you know, mm-hmm. something that a large audience would like. And another person that I think does not has gotten credit, but like to modern audiences, it's fallen by the wayside, but Ben Burt and his sound team mm. re totally revolutionized how you make sound well, in, in movies. He won an Oscar. Point. And won an Oscar. to your He's point, been- Bruce, you know, Lucas, this is another example, like in the auteur era, there's a lot of desire to sort of make all the, all the ideas come from the director. Um, I was just watching a movie. Uh, oh, it's an episode. In my most recent episode that came out, I did The Queen, Stephen Frears and Peter Morgan. And there's a very funny commentary track. Stephen Frears is so, uh, he's so sort of cynical and and very quiet and rumbling. But he he says in the commentary track about one particular cool shot or something, he's like, you know, I always get credit for this. And this was not my idea. This came from like, you know, a grip who said, Hey, it'd be cool if you did this. And I said, you know what? That would be cool. Let's do it. He's like, I always get credit for these things, but all I did was just evaluate whether it was a good idea or not. And that's the job of the director. But to your point about the audio, Bruce, uh, I did appreciate that anew after hearing Bert talk about that. It was Lucas who said, unlike everything else that had come previous in science fiction, I want and I want organic sounds. I don't want computer generated bleeps and bloops, which is why, you know, the uh, it's, it's a high tension wire being struck for a, for a, Laser. a, a what do you call it? Laser? A blaster. A blaster, right? Yeah. Choo, choo. Dan probably has that. Like he's got one of those on his desk to make that sound whenever he wants to. Maybe. It's uh, every time I get a text. Um, <laughs> is it really? No. no, it would be cool if it was though. Um, <laughs> And all of the other, so that, so that's cool. Like every, all those sounds have organic, uh, real world sources, which is not something you think about when you're watching the movie, but when you know it, it makes it that much more interesting. Um, I think that's a really cool thing. And then the other thing, which is, you know, and Ridley Scott always gets the credit for this, the used future, right? Mm-hmm. The, right. Everything looks like in the future, as opposed to pre star Wars science fiction, which is everything is like shiny and amazing and new. Well, that's that's George Lucas, man. He's the one who insisted on that. And I always forget 
until I watch it again. Like 3PO is all fucked up throughout the whole movie. He's all scratched up. Like Vader is all scratched up. It's not like perfect. George Lucas is not a bad writer necessarily and became a bad director, but like. You- Bite your tongue. See, look, George Lucas just froze Bruce. Yeah, that, that talking that shit about George <laughs> See, Lucas. Like Bruce literally is frozen on our screen right now. And he, he can't <laughs> say any what he was about to say. He has been vaporized by George Lucas. <laughs> you can't defend George Lucas and not have your internet lock up. It's apparently he's still not back. So Dan, this is you um, can now speak for Bruce and take while while we're stopped, um, would you like to know uh Grandmoff Tarkin's first name if you don't know it? Sure, Dan. Even though no, this is not the podcast for that, but go ahead, I'll indulge you as my guest. Will Huff. Is that true? Yeah, look at Will up. Huff. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that goofy? I don't know. Are the names good or are they just stupid? I oh we lost him. Oh, we lost him altogether. I think wow. It, I I actually wonder because now that I'm like looking at all the Star Wars like post mm-hmm. post uh, what, do, what do what do we call the 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 second the the I don't know you guys have names for this three. stuff. Um, Welcome back, the, Bruce. Uh, I hope last, you learned your lesson, Bruce. If you're going to disparage George Lucas, he's going to get you from Mill Valley, California. I was supporting George Lucas. I know. No, that's that's what happens when you support George <laughs> Lucas. You get punished. <laughs> You got um, punished, Bruce. You got cut out of the stream. We, very quickly, I just want to throw this out there. If you want to be, if you want to see proof of George Lucas's genius, honestly, read the story conference for Indiana Jones. Oh yeah, that he, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan. Jason, have you uh, read did. that? No. How do you read a story conference? Because they 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 printed, they had it transcribed, and it's it is incredible. Really? Okay, so I do want to read that. I want to read that. And like. I that so his story instincts are amazing and and on amazing. display in this trend and his and his ideas are bananas. Yes, really. It completely like, changed my view of George Lucas. He is a total. He is a total original, and he's just he's just a sh- dialogue writer. <laughs> and I said um, to, so. I said to Dan, I was like, "Are the names great and part of the world, or are they just all dumb?" I so I've actually been thinking about that. Like, but I mean, Luke Skywalker like, is a pretty fucking great name. Well, used to, you know, Luke Starkiller is pretty yeah. lousy name. Yeah. Well, he, but he, Darth but Vader he, is an amazing name. My, my wife says the, uh, the names in Star Wars are like, uh, reading a license plate. <laughs> I mean, she's not oh wrong. God. Like, that's the, and that's the thing. It's like, I watch all these new Star Wars things and it's like planets. Like, I, I was actually just, so the whole thing is like on, uh, in Andor, there's a, there's a planet called Fest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Fest. Um, either way, I'm like, <laughs> Did somebody try harder? Like, are you like try harder or are you like, they, yeah, team? exactly. It's like, it's like, it's like well, a perfect want to balance of like lazy to like overthinking. It's like, but Dan, if I asked you to come up with a great name for a planet, what are you going to say? That's not going to be lame. Go ahead. Give me some names. Snark dish. <laughs> exactly. Uh, my point. See, you, can't, you can't even do it on You're you're a creative, intelligent writer. And if I asked you to come up right now with a believably science fiction planet name, you can't even do it on the spot. Chlorback. Chlorback. Not only that, not only that, but then there's like also like like cultural <laughs> appropriation that you have to consider because a lot of you know what I mean. Like it's not exotic just because it's not American, guys. Yeah. You know, like you can't just use a, a an a Arabic word and call. Well, and there are, and there planet. are wor- there are like Jedi's in in uh, the cartoon that I'm like, yo, that like sort of sounds vaguely racist somehow. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're just like, that's like, I, I, man, if I said that to someone like that, like that wouldn't be cool. Are these um, the cartoon like produced in the seventies? No, no. The, like the, like star Wars oh. rebels, the one. Yeah. Really? 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 No. Yeah. Oh, well, you're just like, they're just fucking playing jazz in there, man. They're just like throwing, they're just like throwing darts at like, you know, vowels and like putting them together. Like it's not. Well, look to wrap up the real legacy of the film to me is the innovation. It's ILM. It's the fact that before star Wars, a lot of this stuff was dying out. There were no effects houses in Hollywood at the time he made star Wars. I thought one of the greatest uh, and most touching aspects of some of the making of docs is um, there's a guy who's a matte painter. And for people who don't know what a matte oh, yeah. is, you know, a matte is, for example, in the scene where uh, Alec Guinness is turning off the tractor beam and he's perched hilariously, as someone points out, like, why would they put the tractor beam controls in the, you know, in a death defying place? The like, matte painter points that out. He's like, why would you? He's, the one who, he's like, but, you know, that's George Lucas's brilliance for peril, right? Where otherwise he's just going and pulling a, a lever, <laughs> but by putting it in what looks like, I don't you know, know, shouldn't it be hard to turn off a tractor beam? A like, thousand. You don't no, want to encourage you, turning you, off. You tractor need to turn beams. the tractor beam on and off a lot. One would imagine. So having it more readily accessible, like, I mean, the, the lack of OSHA regulations in the empire is a well-trod subject. True, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But anyway, that scene is really just, it's Alec Guinness on a platform and there's like two feet to the ground And then someone actually paints what looks like thousands of feet of the Death Star, and that is painted on glass and then photographed meticulously so that it fits exactly into a prearranged portion of the frame. And when you composite these together and you print it as one piece of film, it looks like he's standing on a thousand feet. That's a matte painter. And this guy's father was like a Disney matte painter. And he's like literally one of the only guys left doing it. And, and George Lucas kind of hired him to become part of this ILM team. So that part, I, I really recommend people watch um, light and magic on Disney yeah. plus. It's really fascinating. And it's such okay. a cool, I mean, I, I always wish I could have worked in a shop like that with so many interesting, cool people. And literally your job is to figure out all this crazy shit that no one knows how to do. Cause no one's ever done it before. It's we're pretty- not engineers. That's that's the problem. Uh, but, you know, like Star Wars, I think, it, you know, lasting legacy, no matter what, is similar to Blade Runner. It was this very uh, miraculous coming together of all of these different people who were mm-hmm. geniuses, period, who did all of these genius things and were allowed to do all these genius things because they were under the guidance of the singular genius of George Lucas, who recognized like yeah, you guys, you're going to help me. Here's my idea. You guys figure out how to do it. And that's sort of like why it is what it is. It's not just a singular thing. It's not just because, you know, he mashed up all these different genres. It's it's all of those things coming together that made this what it is. Whether it's a good movie, like meaningful and, you know, you can relate it to your own life and life lessons and stuff. Another story, but it, it is what it is uh, for very good reason. Put it that way. Dan, yeah. final thoughts. Yeah, I think I think if we've learned anything today, it's that Grand Moff Tarkin's first name was Wilhuff. I'm glad to have known it. <laughs>
Dan, as your now wife famously said after their her first date with you, it's a lot of jokes. <laughs> Here's um, your to sum up Star Wars for your audience, for my audience, and this is what you have as a as a grandma. No, I think I think I think what I think what it is is it's it's sort of tragic in a way uh, because hearing you guys talk about watching it and sort of the you know the luster being gone that first watch without the context, like movies should ha- should exist without context like they shouldn't need context but it did so much for the creative movie making world that uh you know things were built on top of it and around it and and over it and now that we've seen all the things that we've seen in the last half century you go back and it's not as impressive it's not as good because you know star wars walked so that J.J. Abrams could fly. Is what I'm <laughs> to say. No, but like, also, true, like just, it is. It is just not it's, Ryan Johnson. It's sad. Wow, he gave J.J. the credit. Well, wow. J.J. made two. Ryan only made one. I just also want to throw out a hot, a bit of a hot take. I want to see what you guys think. I know how it's categorized. I know how everyone thinks about it. Oh, this is going to be good. Star it's Wars science fiction movie, not a science fiction movie. <laughs> Absolutely not okay. a science fiction. What is science it? fiction is based at least partially in fact. There is not one thing in Star Wars that is possible or makes any sense. It is not science fiction. It is fantasy. It is fantasy. They just didn't know how to categorize it because it was in outer space with lasers. Everything else about it is completely nonsensical. Dan, science fiction <sighs> or fantasy know, or man. both? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy being a sheep. In this kind of situation, where like, about, if I'm told can we live with sci-fi fantasy? Maybe science fantasy. I don't know, but it's not. There's no. So you're saying that science fiction films have or are supposed to have a plausibility to them? Like they have to be based in some kind of science. Like, it's well, not, like what what you know, what isn't based in science? Like other than the Force. Nothing. The aliens, the droids, the the ability to go between planets, the, the light speed. But that's all. Not one bit that's of that. All, yeah, that's all science fiction. That's all science. That's not science. That's not a, how are they? Is how, alien what is science there, fiction. What is Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is a better way to test Bruce's theory. Bruce, is Planet of the Apes a science fiction film? Yes, because the statue. It is conceivable deal, that conceivable that this could happen. That you can travel through time. There's mathematical proofs that could say, like, yeah, you could travel. Okay, so why isn't it conceivable that in a galaxy far far away, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, these events could have happened? That's yours. That's your very human Earth based perspective, but. Isn't Star Wars here to tell us that maybe there are other perspectives in the world, Bruce? Yeah, it I was a you know really, what? really long we were, time ago, dude. <laughs> if we're if we're to end with any lesson, it should be that. <laughs> okay, boys, listen. Thank you for joining me today. I had a great time kicking around Star Wars with you. Um, I presume this because it's Star Wars, this will probably be like one of our top downloaded episodes because people consume Star Wars content, and then maybe we'll be maybe we'll be able to reunite after we've rewatched Empire Strikes Back. Ooh. And have a whole different type of filmic experience. I'm going to watch that. It's a perfect movie to see. Perfect movie, Let, as Dan. Perfect movie. Let's just jump right to the Force Awakens. I mean, not the Force Awakens. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker. We'll just cut out all, of all those in the middle, <laughs> and we'll just and then we'll just do a suicide pact. All right, boys. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.